Oh, no, I don't. I just need the guy in the back to turn up the, the noise. <laughs> so um, I forgot what I was going to say, but I was thinking about prior to this sermon, this has been something on my heart, uh, was if I've preached something applicable, in other words, if I've shared something with you that is something you can do something with, then it only seems reasonable that I would ask you if you were able to do something with it. <laughs> so before I even start, I'd like, I'd like to give that opportunity. And um, we didn't come to church just to listen to me or just sing a song. We came to participate, and I think this would be a great opportunity to do that. So if you remember, the last few messages have been on um, accountability, and last week was about vulnerability. So you have to share something that you don't want to share with somebody in particular. It might be difficult. Basically, it's the sensitive areas of your life. Wondering if there was anybody that the Lord worked through. Obviously, there's different scenarios and situations, and not every sermon is going to be carried about by every single person within that week necessarily. But um, part of this is to help hold you accountable to what God has shared. If it's been the Lord's word, it's helping hold you accountable. But just a thought it would be a great opportunity to see if anybody wanted to share. There was a time when you actually had uh, a close meeting with one or more people throughout this week or after that sermon, that is working you toward that direction of accountability and vulnerability with others. Just wondering if I could open up that. Yeah. Yeah, somebody did, didn't he? <laughs> so uh, Cody's just relating the fact that him and I did. Now, isn't it sad if the preacher doesn't even do his own sermon, you know, like, so you guys get an opportunity to hold me accountable. So if for some reason you notice that throughout the week that I don't mention it or I don't say anything about it, that's a good time for you to say, hey, preacher, did you do what you said? <laughs> so, yes, I did. You did. And it was good. It was really good. Anybody else would like to share something in, in that area? The other side to that is it emphasizes, it emphasizes you know, when the word of the Lord gets into you, when you apply that and what that looks like. And I think a lot of times after we're done preaching, we just don't know what it looks like and we need to. I think that's a part of the message. Think of it in a way, we're just gathered in a big living room here sharing what the Lord's done. Anybody want to share? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to preaching. You're going to get stuck with me if you don't. <laughs> Jolana. Oh yeah. If okay, it, it, I I won't do it for those. It's it's enough not to. So we'll still let you share. <laughs>
See, I love that because that definitely highlights things. There's things that I wish I had said. You know, you walk away and you're like, ooh, I wish I had said that. So you're, you're helping share some of the things I wish I had said. <laughs> so praise the Lord. That's great. Phenomenal. Anybody else want to share? It, don't not share because you're afraid of the mic. Okay, so. Yeah, you have to. I did. <laughs> so I have been uh, struggling to just make my devotional time something um, like that's set. No matter when I get up or what happens in my day, that I'm going to have that. And um, it's hard because my ideal day, you know, starts at 6.30 and then we're doing school by 8.30 and then there's, you know, breakfast and the kids are all kind and that doesn't happen real often that, that things go as I plan. So take wanting to recognize that even when things don't go as I plan, that I can still go, no, I need to stop and have that time with the Lord anyway. And um, so I have been able to more this week, probably only about half the time. And, uh, yeah, that was something I was going to talk to someone about that I asked to help keep me accountable with was that, well, I didn't do it every day this week, just about half the week. But um, so the, I guess for me the vulnerability is um, just that, that uh, to do it anyway, even if it doesn't look the way I want, and then also to recognize on the days when I haven't to try to um, still take time to call out to the Lord, you know, as I'm driving to the store or when I think of a need, just stop and talk to him about it instead of, you know, having it be in my room in the quiet in the early morning um, to, to make that a part of my day anyway. I'm, I'm very blessed that in our home that the Lord is encouraging us all to seek his face. And so um, I'm amazed at how the Lord does that. Anybody else want to share with us this morning just the application of his word? I know some of you might be thinking, well, how much longer? Is this going to mean that he's going to preach to us longer? You know, is this going to, sl- I mean, how much longer are we going to be here? So I'll, I'll adjust the sermon accordingly. <laughs> Sadra. Um, <clears throat> Cody and I had some opportunities to be vulnerable with each other. And also to talk about um, just in marriage, and I think in just good, healthy relationships, even with other people, um, how important it is to, um, if there is going to be a place for vulnerability, make sure that it's a safe place for that to happen, um, where it's not going to be, you know, in front of other people or... Um, you know, a lot of like judgment or condemnation, but just meeting each other where we're at, you know, holding each other accountable, but in, you know, inappropriate ways and um, just some really fun exercise of that. (laughs) So what's wonderful about that is, uh, It's an application to the very same things that I had said on Sunday. We want it to be safe, and we recognize the importance of that so that we don't abuse the privilege of somebody sharing something intimate about their life and then not take that as a sacred thing. 
And so as we continue as a body of people to grow together, we need that. I don't need this anymore. Um, I need two mics to be heard. <laughs> so as we're going to grow together, we have to realize that that's what we're stepping toward is closer relationships with the body of Christ. And I know I've heard it. It's, pro- it's been said by me, and I know that you've heard it said, we don't come to church for anything else but Jesus. But the reality is we come to Jesus and for one another. God intended for us to have healthy relationships within these, these demographics. And I feel like this, if we were good and skilled at being um, vulnerable with one another and having those close relationships, we would grow in Christ because we're accountable to the way that we live and we don't just let it just go to the wayside. And I all too fear that um, the sermon at the pulpit is, is left at the pulpit. And I don't want that to happen. And so I'm going to do my best, even at your discomfort and mine as well, to try and keep that from happening. <laughs> you understand? So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 through 32. Um, title there is The Fullness of Christian Duty. You could call it Christian Walk. You could call it a lot of things. Um, but despite whatever you see there, it's still going to be uh, Christian practice no matter how you look at it. So Isaiah, I mean not Isaiah, Ephesians. Chapter 4. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we get to hear your word spoken to us. I'm so grateful that there are things that we're already putting into place in our life because we want your best. The Lord, and I thank you for the growth that comes out of that. And Lord, what a depth to the idea that we can be vulnerable with one another. Lord, in a safe environment, it's not necessarily for the crowds, but Lord, one-on-one in the church of God is walking close to that. And with that, Jesus, that you are magnifying what you want us to to live, how you want your will to be accomplished within each of our lives. And so this morning we want to surrender again to what it is that you want to say to us. Lord, we do not want to be hearers of the word only. We do not want to walk away from this service with no call of duty, no uh, service to the one we love. Lord, we want to remember that because we love you, that we want to serve you well. We want to give to you our very best in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If so, be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, 
Speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands, the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needs. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed to the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So, I thought I would take more of a time to get the brief or the summary of these verses, what it might mean to us when we read of basically the Christian conduct. If you continue throughout chapter 5, you'll read that he continues basically the same theme. He's giving instructions to the Christians. He's giving instructions to the believers what to do and what not to do. It's very practical, and it's still tied to our faith. And I think this is where we get uncomfortable, is when uh, the minister or ministers have, or even a brother or sister is actually giving you specific direction for life. And obviously there's a, there's a distance you do go with that, and there's a place you don't go with that. Um, and it does take some at least discernment to know which one's which. <clears throat> so the main themes of this or the main truths to be observed is faith is essential to our salvation. And obedience is central to our faith. Um, I actually, it's the first time I actually heard that term said. It was only three or four months ago. They were talking about um, obedience-based discipleship. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I absolutely agree with it, but it's, it's interesting that I haven't heard that terminology or something similar to that all these years. Um, but what we see is the need of when somebody comes to Christ for the first time to have direction for their life. And the direction is obedience. What does God say in his word that you're required to do? What is it that God wants from you? <clears throat> so... Some of the other things that I realize that's important when we're reading the Word of God, I hope that we individually study it and we want to understand the doctrines that are tied to these parts of Scripture. Because if we don't have any doctrinal understanding, these Scriptures really don't make sense to us. Or we don't apply them well. So having some grounding in doctrine, and you will hear me from time to time share doctrinal thoughts because I feel like it's so necessary for grounding when we're reading the Word of God. Because there's other passages that you're going to run into that unless you have an, a doctrinal, a firm doctrinal uh, foundation, there isn't really any good way to interpret or even go forward with how you're supposed to live that out. So uh, one of these is the necessary agreement of life and heart. This is something that John Wesley used to preach about. Faith is also, faith is consistent with moral obligation. Um, we don't talk much about moral obligation. And we don't hear a whole lot talked about moral law. Um, 
and so when we get into the word law, I think a lot of us already turn. There's a red radar that just sounds because we're like, oops, you just hit the red button, and now we're moving over in the direction of legalism. And automatically, we, I think what we've done is replaced the laws, commands, and directions of God with the fear of legalism, and we haven't faced what is it that God actually wants us to do. And the problem with that is, is that if we go too far in the fear of keeping the commandments of God and what God has given to us, a sense of moral obligation, then we begin to invite all kinds of perversions into the gospel. So when I'm done with this, basically, at least you'll be able to say this, there's a balance between the two, a harmony that only God has completed in his spirit. So faith is consistent with moral obligation. And so if, if I were to say it this way, is moral law, and I've stated this before in the church, but it's not something we regularly hear, so I want to say it again. Moral law is not created. God did not create a moral law. God did not himself create what is right and wrong. Moral law is, and even C.S. Lewis says this, it's a natural law. Basically, and the reason I say this is because there are certain actions that even if God were to do, if Jesus Christ had committed adultery, if Jesus Christ had stated a lie, Jesus would have sinned. So it's a law that God is subject to, not just a, God, a law that God has made. So it's a, when we talk about natural law, it's a law that is placed there as, as a natural obligation. There's no way of taking it away, no way of getting rid of it. So one of the confusions we often have when we talk about the gospel or talk about the Bible is the confusion when Jesus Christ came, he died and was resurrected, what did he get rid of and what did he keep? Well, there's no way that in anything that God would have taken away or destroyed moral law. And you will find throughout Scripture as you read it, and this is why I say it's important to have doctrinal understanding, because we might say there's a lot of thoughts about the ceremonial laws, some of the Old Testament practices, but what is it that Jesus required? And I can guarantee you this, there is nothing changed as far as God is concerned with the necessity of obedience to the Ten Commandments. You're not going to find one person who's justified and breaking those commandments, and even being able to do so in faith. So still today, if you're living in adultery, you're in transgression to the Word of God, to the law of God, and to the Spirit of God. And so Jesus Christ died to forgive and bring us back in right relationship with God, but not at the destruction of our moral makeup of what makes what's wrong and right and, and all those kinds of things, but it, it strengthening it, establishing it, giving value to it, and giving proper place to it. So that basically, just, what's that? Yeah, exactly. So instead of us struggling all the time to be able to do what we know we ought to do, we have the work and the Spirit of God at work within us, establishing those principles and making them more lively within our own hearts. So how do these passages relate with the whole of Ephesians? So when we read of Paul, and here he is talking about you shouldn't lie, don't lie, this is what you should do in place of it, we establish there's moral law, and moral law within the New Testament. 
And whenever you have a moral law, you have a moral obligation. You have an obligation to do it. Now, there may be instances when we're like struggling with what is the best choice, but it's a matter of having the discernment, understanding the best that you know, and to make the best choice on what is the right thing to do. And it's not about the right feeling. It's about the right thing. What is it that I ought to do? Not what do I feel like doing. What makes me feel good when I do it? And this is where the the beauty of living for Jesus comes into play because when Jesus asks you to do something, and when you know, basically, mandated from Scripture, there's something you ought to do, you have no reference for choosing to do otherwise. Even in the salvation, even in the blood of Jesus, it's not a reference for doing otherwise. It's a complement to what God has given us. So these passages relate to the whole of Ephesians. It shows, how do they do it? It shows that, there, that no outward reflection of our life can be consistent within the intrinsic graces of God. So how we're living outwardly is should be and is consistent with the grace of God if you're living within the grace of God. There shouldn't be a light and dark contrast to our life on a normal level, on as an exception every now and then a Christian sins. But as a normal rule of life, it shouldn't be our common conduct. Are we tempted to sin? Commonly. But how we live it out and what we do with that temptation should not be the norm of constantly living in sin. Or it's not consistent with the grace of God, the teachings of the Bible on the grace of God. So that's one way that it's consistent with the rest of Ephesians. Um, Here we are not being warned against straying away. There's other places it does in the Bible. But we're being inspired toward faithfulness. So everything that Paul is writing here in Ephesians is an inspiration of faithfulness. Not what happens if you miss up. Not what happens if you fail. But this is consistent with the rest of Ephesians because in all of Ephesians, Paul is bringing together the, uh, the enormities of all that he's done through the grace of Jesus Christ. The fullness of what God has offered to us through adoption all the way into regeneration, salvation, sanctification. It's all in this book. And so the beauty of that that we're seeing is is that there's nothing inconsistent here. But what he's doing in all of it isn't telling the Christians, this is what you need to worry about, or even the unbeliever, if you fail. But what he's telling you is all the reasons why you want to keep living for God all the reasons why you want to keep practicing the grace of God within your life. You want to keep growing from glory to glory. Why you want a new height and level of understanding and intimacy with the Lord. And all of it is to point to all the reasons of why we want to say, yes, yes, I want that. And so there's, there are probably warnings dispersed, but the, the challenges are really to those who are hungry. Every passage points us in the right direction. And every duty harmonizes with our agreement to moral obligation. So there's a sense of right and wrong. And when we read in these passages, we're not reading this something that Paul's kind of turning our head and looking at it like, are you really telling us that we can get away with that? 
what we're seeing is a harmony of what we would say is moral law as it's already revealed within me. What he's saying, I can't help but agree with. Those that stole, steal no more. Who could ever say the world would be a better place if in common society all of us were thieves? So the reality is that's not the case. And I can't agree with that. So when I read these instructions, I agree with not just what he says, but I agree with the moral law behind what he says. And the gospel that seems to complement it and bring it all together. All true definitions of grace bind us to moral obligation, bind a moral obligation to our faith. I remember I talked to a guy one time on the job site, and he said he wasn't a Christian and he wasn't religious, but he did believe in pretty much like moral code, some kind of moral ethic, moral standard. And I was like, hallelujah, like so do I. I said the only difference, the only difference between him and I was the fact that I believed that God was the one that I looked to. And I so the, all of my trust and belief, religion, whatever you want to call it, was included that, not excluded it, not like, oh, I have faith in Jesus so that I can live any any lifestyle I want outside of any moral obligation, any outside of any moral law, not at all. And so I thought, that's interesting. I think that this man has probably missed the point of the gospel and the point of what true religion is. If he believes in a moral ethic, a code of moral ethics, then why wouldn't he believe in God? Why wouldn't he surrender to what God wants? But sometimes our idea of moral code is more about holding somebody else accountable and not really what it means about us personally. So how does this help us? When we think of all of this, how does it help us? It provides a rule to address Christian conduct. How else do I deal with it? So I, I have faced in some scenarios where somebody was sharing with me some of the details of their life or I was aware of the details of their life and it didn't agree with the gospel. And we've all been there. I mean, all of us have been into those situations. And have we not had times where we told them and tried to hold them accountable to what they ought to do and they became angry at us as if we were judging them? Well, the reality is the Word of God is judging them. And I'm just being a messenger of God's Word. Now, I can be a messenger with different intentions. I can be the messenger that's there because I have uh, a a power trip over you, I could have other reasons, or I could sincerely want and desire God's best for your life. And why would I exclude something that God wants you to do if I notice it? Now, it's important that we realize that here is the instructions, not suggestions. They're commands. They're things that God wants us to do. Jesus gave us commands. And Jesus said, if you love me, Keep my commands. It reveals a code of ethics that the world is accountable to. There's a lot of stuff out there where people have redefined what is right and what is wrong, 
but agreeably, I haven't found one man who uses dirty language that can tell you that he does it lawfully. I can't tell you that I know of one person who's living in an adultery that can say they do it lawfully. They do it with good conscience. They do it with conscience toward God. As a matter of fact, when I hear somebody giving their reasons for such actions or choices, what I generally would say is this, is that there is no connection with God. That was the moment in heart they chose to make that divorce with God. I am not committed to you because I know that I'm not living the way that you want to. Again, another gentleman that I had talked to at work, um, he had shared with me one time, he's, he said that basically he was living the life, he was living happy. He was living with another woman, and he wasn't married to her, and he was living happy because it was better than the marriage from his, his first wife. And I had talked to him, basically I had asked him, do you feel like you're living what God wants you to live? I wasn't judging him, I was just basically giving him. And he said no. And I said, do you, are you concerned about what's going to happen in the end? And he said, I, I am. And so eventually the question was, why don't you want to surrender your life to Jesus? Why don't you want to give your life to God right now? And this is what he told me. He told me because there was things that he was doing that he knew that he'd have to give up if he gave his life to God. Sometimes that is the separation. Jesus has a will to make us new and give us a new heart. So not only are we giving up something, that God doesn't, that God hates, but that we're actually, we're being, there's new loves being formed in our hearts. So it's not me losing out on the enjoyment of the world and accessing all the boredment of heaven and all that God has to offer and the waste of time and the lack of entertainment and joy there is in God, but that there's a new love and in satisfaction with the Lord put in my heart that the world looks exceedingly dark and unenjoyable to me when I have been converted and saved. So it binds moral absolutes and truths to our understanding and relationship with God. It doesn't divide them. And you can only realize it's got to do one of two things. It either takes away the moral absolutes and the moral truths, or it brings them about. In other words, it establishes them. It, it gives them a basis for them. Or it destroys them. But you can't have, you can have one or the other, but you can't have both. And imagine here, Jesus Christ dying, securing our salvation, and then leaving us empty morally, even leaving us bankrupt when it comes to just ethical practices. So we could teach ethics all day long and not be outside of the gospel, but we have to be careful. And I would say this, as we spend all of our time and I thought about this, this was just a part of it, was if we overemphasize moral obligations and de-emphasize the gospel, or if we overemphasize the gospel and de-emphasize moral obligations, we have an unhealthy balance there. What I mean is this, you can never ultimately under or overemphasize the importance of the gospel but that you can create 
an unbalancedness to your view of the gospel. And I want to share one of those with you. I want to share with you a quote. I want, and I'm not going to tell you who quoted it, but I want you to, um, and my boys cannot say it because they already know about it. <laughs> I'm going to share this quote, and I want you to tell me who you think gave this quote. The national government will regard it as its first and foremost duty to revive the nation with a spirit of unity and cooperation. It will preserve and defend those basic principles on which our nation has been built. It regards Christianity as the foundation of our national morality and the family as the basis of national life. Any guesses? Abraham Lincoln. Great guess. It's not him, but very good guess. Unfortunately, not even close. <laughs> Any other guesses? Come on, i got to get one or two more before I give you the answer. Nope, not Charles Finney. Billy Graham. Okay, good. None of those guesses were right, but I'm really glad because I can capitalize on the fact that all of you had highlighted either godly or, or good man in standing. But it wasn't. It was Adolf Hitler. That's what happens when we divorce the moral obligations of the gospel from the person of Jesus Christ. When we have a lack of balance, we overwhelm one side or the other and we miss what God has planned. Ultimately, now some people struggle because the word obligation is what almost entirely like we struggle with that word in this. Now, there's other places and I think there's other there's other quotes that I've read by Adolf Hitler that had just the opposite view. But at some point in his life, he had that view of God or Christians. His biggest problem was with Jews. He had no problem with Catholics and Christians, just with Jews. Interesting, the dividedness of his nature. What I want to focus on there is obligation. When you hear obligation, what comes to mind? You have to do it. You have to do it. Absolutely. Anything else that comes to mind? You're going to be held accountable. Absolutely. It's a need, not a want. All of these are very good. One of the things I realize is, is that when I use the word obligation, I, if I don't put it in context, it will ruin the gospel. So one context is that it's um, based on the, uh, a merit mentality. So I'm obligated, meaning that this is the way that I merit my right or merit my place with God. And so... Um, I would say traditionally or naturally or normally, when we talk about obligation, that that's where our minds will go. So if I say it's an obligation to obey God, you will begin to feel like there's a legalistic mentality behind it. And I would say, if I put it in that context, you would be right. But where we change that is, is when we begin to change an obligation as an ought to. This is what we ought to. In light of the law of love, what ought I to do? In other words, what would be the right choice? 
what would be the, the pure choice? If I'm acting out in the spirit of love, what should be my actions that correlate with it? What should be the demonstration as the actions of my life? And that's what the, the other context for obligation. So when we would say it, we would say that the love of God obligates us to the, the moral laws of God or obligates us to the commands of God. So what we see is, is a virtue, it creates a basis. In other words, these are the, these are the walls that you keep. This is the uh, boundaries of which virtue actually works. This is the boundaries of which law, I mean love, actually keeps us. Outside of those boundaries, we miss the love itself and the act itself. So the gospel harmonizes it because the problem is, is that outwardly we can have expressions of love and it not actually have the spirit of love involved in it at all. And so only through the gospel do we understand how we complete this whole thing and live the way God wanted us to live. And so I fear that if we remove the word obligation out of our context, a lot of times, especially in Scripture, where Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Well, he's saying, he's, he's committing us to an obligation. But he's given us the motivation for that obligation that complements it and makes it so that we can do it and we can follow it. So that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so, merely the only thing now at play in the life of a Christian is this. Is there anything in your life that you couldn't recommend to God? Is there anything that you feel unstable about, you feel uncomfortable with? Either in, in your doing or something you ought to do instead. And probably all of us will say, there's always area of improvement that I have that I need to be before, that I need to have with God. And I think I shared this before with you, remembering that grace, what does it protect and what does it not protect? So when I think of grace, grace has to be safe. I also think of it as is that, so I had shared with you before about, you know, going the speed limit, who drives the speed limit these days, you know? This is what they tell you to do. And so we have basically what God commands and he tells us to do and the strict line that draws 55 miles an hour, you can't change or vary from that. You know, you got to just be perfect in it. And you're like, well, nobody's perfect. So the preacher that first gets up here and tells you that, and I'm not telling you that, is going to put you in the position of saying, well, either you're going to bind me to legalism or you're going to exclude me from the hope of the gospel because I find deficiencies in my life in one way or another. So what we find is, commonly, there should be an attitude, there should be a mindset, I'm going to obey the speed limit. But if I'm driving 56 or 57 miles an hour, there's grace. In other words, I'm not going to get stopped, I'm not going to get a ticket for it, right? But the problem that we have is there's two people traveling down the lane of what we call grace. We have the one whose mind is with a license to, to go above and beyond the speed limit. The other one has in mind to obey the speed limit, just understands that there's limitations and struggles within that, con that context that we find ourselves here and there and at times not doing it. And nobody has that perfection in life. 
So when we read 1 John, he says, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. When we mess up, if we mess up. But there's, when you look at, examine both of those people, one of them does not have an advocate and the other one does. One had no intention to be under the law of love, neither the expression of that. I wasn't intending to do what I was supposed to. I see basically grace as an opportunity to constantly divert from duty. And I don't mind that. I have no issues with that. And I would say there, I would begin to question whether there was salvation or salvation intent. Or if they were saved, are you backslidden? Are you turned away from the Lord? That there's no intention to follow Jesus Christ as a norm of life in basic life choices along with the spirit of love that drags you on into it. You know, like Jesus loved me and he gave himself for me. And I have no bias toward that. My life complements it. My choices complement that. And so then you have on the, the other end the person who fails. And they look at the gospel and they see Jesus went down to the lowest for me. And he's constantly, in my messes, when, my, when I mess up, when I diverge from what I know to be God's plan for my life, that I want to get back to that. Notice every Christian seems to have that. Every good Christian does. They always have this sense, you know, if I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do, I feel like I need to get back to that. I need to do that. Part of my emphasis this morning, again, for you guys to relate back to me and toward one another about accountability is, is that's what gets us, that's a part of the tool that gets us there. Obviously not everything because we can have these accountable moments with one another and then when it comes to God, we just don't take time with Him. But the reality is, is that our lives produce an aroma. And the purer that we live in connection to Jesus, the purer that aroma to the world. Now, the world is going to strictly look at your morality. They're going to look at what you say, what you do, da-da-da-da-da-da. But the church doesn't. Because we know that outwardly, you can appear beautiful. So Jesus said this. He said, first clean the inside of the cup, and the outside shall be clean. So when we're dealing with anger, when we're dealing with pride, when we're dealing with bitterness, Jesus is our straight and narrow. We go to him. We don't... As much as I want to believe that nobody that believes in God's word and believes in Jesus is going to pacify that and say, you know, it really doesn't matter. And it's been termed uh, once saved, always saved. I, I, I think that we need to get that in context because it can. I've heard different people give different contexts for it, so be careful when you hear that. But I would say this is that basically there's this idea that once Jesus Christ, once I gave my faith to Jesus, after that, nothing else matters. And there isn't, a, there isn't a moral being on the face of the earth that ultimately agrees with that, not in conscience. And so 
We're bringing that back up to level. And so the only way I can say this is that we must continue to teach the grace of God and lift it up and lift the gospel of Jesus Christ and the faith of the gospel and the fact that there isn't any good deed. And I want to say this with all my heart. The fact that we have sinned, there isn't one good deed that you could ever do that would make up for the sin that you've committed. You need the blood of Jesus. There isn't a good person out there that has done so much good that they have never once in their life sinned. And the moment they sin, they put themselves under the restraints of that moral law. And believe me, it's just as good to condemn us as it is for God in Christ to use it to help mold us. Because I'm going to tell you what, nobody, nobody's perfectly obeyed that moral law. Because we have a sense of the suitableness of that law and there's so many times that we've missed what God has for us in conscience. So what I'm saying, and I'm, I'm begging and praying here in, uh, for myself, for you, you guys as well, have relationships with one another that hold you closely to the gospel and hold you closely to the moral obligations of that gospel. And learn to continue to grow in that. Continue to let God Rehearse things in your life. Because I can say, there's are times I get angry and I'm not supposed to. Absolutely. And you know, the only thing that bothers me, my wife smiles at me, the only thing that bothers me is, is I know that I'm accountable. And sometimes somebody was fearful to say anything, but I know that they should have. And also, I recognize when somebody has I have no justification for it. I can't tell you that it was right. I can't go forward with it and say, oh, you know, I was good anyway. So despite all those facts, I guess I would say this. I feel like I stand before a body of people who absolutely love to improve their life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you love to demonstrate Jesus in all that you say and do. And... That is the blamelessness of the body of Christ. I believe that with all my heart. So, let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, this gospel is in our lives. And I pray that even though this has been predominantly doctrinally taught, I pray that uh, it's also helping define Scripture for us, Lord. I I recognize that it's so important that the Scripture be defined and uh, help us see and lead our way Lord, we want to live outwardly and our outward life agree with what you've done in our hearts. And Jesus, thank you for the Holy Spirit dealing with us. Because God, uh, if not, then the, our immoral practices will slowly but surely erode away in our love for the truth and the Savior for who you are. And God, I just pray that you will continue to help us embrace you and love you and commit ourselves to you in such faithfulness. But Lord, there's nothing as a blemishness in the testimony of our living that the world, Lord, can really find at fault for us. And I thank you, Jesus, because we love you and want to continue to embrace you with all of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) Amen, she says.